Welcome to the Transfer Window. I'm Henry McRae and I'm joined by podcast regulars Ian McGarry and Duncan Castles. Coming up, we'll be discussing the big-name Premier League goalkeeper who seems to be running down his big-money Premier League contract. We'll check out who the real contenders are for a place in next year's Champions League final in Kiev. And we'll touch on the latest Twitter tit-a-tit that stirred up a terrible kerfuffle when Arsenal dared to poke fun at a Daily Mail sports writer. But before that, we'll do what all smart managers do and build from the back. Defenders were in high demand during the summer window, and now with injuries piling up, they are back in the headlines. It's been reported that Manchester United's Phil Jones required six pain-killing injections, that's six pain-killing injections, before he took to the field for England's friendly against Brazil. Then he only lasted 25 minutes and he had to go off. His club manager, Jose Mourinho, is, as you may have gathered, a little less than impressed. So, Duncan, what do we think about Phil Jones' case specifically? And then let's open it up as well and have a look at what kind of transfer activity we can expect to see around defenders in general. Well, Manchester United are furious about the injury to Phil Jones, who's been um, statistically their best defender this season in terms of uh, minutes on the pitch and goals conceded. Um, He went on international duty with England for those two friendly matches with uh, a bruised nerve. And the expectation was he certainly wouldn't play in the first game. Um, He he went as as players are expected to, so they could be checked by the uh, England doctor made not to play him. At least that was Manchester United's expectation and and their expectation was such that he'd been carrying the injury for a while and it's a friendly match, so you shouldn't risk him. Unfortunately, Gareth Southgate, despite playing a particularly young side in that match and making a a virtue out of his experimental youth side, um, decided that he wanted Jones at centre-back and put him on the pitch with his thigh strapped with an, an injection taken before the game and a further five injections after, I think, the warm-up um, to get him onto the pitch, which um, Mourinho, after the match in his first press conference, um, was very vocal about never having given a player an injection to play in a friendly game. Um, and it's, it's an interesting situation because the FA have briefed that Manchester United were consulted on um, the injection and the decision to play him. The uh, information from Manchester United is that they did not approve that that he play in the game for obvious reasons. And technically, I think England do have the, the right to play a player if he decides that he wants to take the medical advice of the national team. It's his decision, it's his body, he can play the game. The, the issue here is whether Jones was kind of press-ganged into playing because we're in a World Cup year he obviously wants, he's never established himself as a regular first choice centre back for England. He would like to be that. And he'd particularly like to be that in the World Cup. So, did he feel an obligation to play when his body wasn't right? And as a result, um, took multiple injections, had to come off before half time, and hasn't played for Manchester United in the, in the two following games. And it's, it, it's not the first time he has been injured on in international duty for England. Um, and it's uh, an issue. 
and a, and a, a kind of flashpoint that I think we'll see more of going forward this season is the Southgate's handling of players on international duty and how it affects the major clubs in England in a very tight championship race. I think here, Henry and, and Duncan, there is a, a question um, of authority stroke etiquette on Gareth Southgate's part. Uh, and I say that because um, I know from uh, experience and speaking to managers um, that in the time of Sven Jorn Eriksson and Fabio Capello, play, uh, managers who I would respectfully say have a much greater uh, reputation and managerial career than Gareth Southgate's, um, those guys had the charisma, authority, courtesy, whatever you want to call it, to call up the managers of especially and particularly the top six clubs or Champions League clubs before friendlies at this time of year in November and say which players of theirs they needed, ask them which of those players they could have and then agree with those managers how many minutes those players would play. And those agreements were struck, obviously, off the record. You know, there was no deals done in terms of contracts exchanged. But it was done properly. If you, It was done in a way where the managers of the clubs felt comfortable with what the national team manager was doing or proposed to do. And I think what's happened as a result um, of the Jones situation and Southgate has been down to that non-communication, not even miscommunication between the um, the managers, uh, uh, in this case, Jose Mourinho and Gareth Southgate, because clearly if Southgate had phoned Mourinho to say, this is what I'm going to do, is that OK? He would certainly have said no. And now Southgate is embarrassed because Mourinho's called him out in a press conference before Manchester United came to say this is wrong and ch- challenging him, anyone to say it was right. So um, I think it's true uh, what Duncan says. In World Cup year, the players themselves are a little bit more, um, let's just say they're sensitive and conscious of what might happen to them should they get injured and what that would mean for their chances of playing in the World Cup for their country. And that's not just England players, that's all across the Premier League and all across the world. So um, this situation will, will become more of a hot potato as we go on through the season. Um, I'll go back to something I've mentioned in a, 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 a prior uh, transfer window podcast and that's something which um, uh, Michael Platini admitted to me that is that when he was playing for Juventus and it was a tournament year whether it be European Championship or World Cup he would take it easy for the five months going into that tournament because playing for France was more important than even playing for Juventus so I don't think we have that situation anymore I don't think it exists because football's uh, far more uh, competitive stroke uh, the financial demands uh, as well as the playing demands um, mean that players have to be at the top all of the time but I do think that this will be something which we'll be talking about a lot more in the weeks and months to come Six injections seems quite a lot, doesn't it? I mean, is there a duty of care that, you know, there's obviously a significant problem if he requires six injections to get on the park, how how often are players taking six injections before they get get onto the football field? I've, I've not heard of a player taking six injections before, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I did speak to a Premier League physio about it, and he was stunned that a player would take six injections, um, particularly for a friendly match. Um, obviously, it's, a, it's quite an unusual injury, this um, the bruised nerve. 
uh, physio I spoke to, in fact, hadn't dealt with one of those in his own career, and he's he's been a Premier League physio for a decade now. So it was clearly they were just trying to deaden the pain in in a in a standing injury to try and get him on the pitch, which is always comes at a risk. Um, there are players who will regularly take painkilling injections for important matches. There have been players in the past who would take painkilling injections to train. Um, but there are repercussions of doing that because obviously if you fill your body full of painkillers, you don't feel um, the, the additional damage you're doing to muscles or tendon in training or in a match. And, and I think you know it was clear Mourinho's anger at it, and, and the, the, the real genesis of the anger was it was a friendly game. It was a non-competitive match. Almost every Premier League manager now hates international breaks because their players are taken out of their training regime. They're used in a different way. A lot of them feel the international managers don't look after them properly in the way they train them, as well as in the way they play them. But just moving to a different training regime often affects the rhythm. And, you know, you could watch after the Premier League games this weekend, the managers of the top clubs, quite a few of them saying they were pleased with the result because they got a result after an international break. So it's always difficult for them. Um, this, But giving giving a guy an injection to play in a friendly is, is the one that really, really wound up Mourinho. And, and interesting as well, Duncan, um, just what you said there, uh, Pep Guardiola, I think the biggest smell I've seen on his face all season when he was explaining that the victory last weekend was, and it is, I quote, complicated by the fact that uh, there had been an international break. And it's very difficult to come back after an international break with all the players, because obviously every single first-team player at Manchester City is an international. So, And then what happens? John Stones pops his hamstring on his, uh, his right leg within the first half hour of, uh, and has to be replaced by someone I think most of us thought had disappeared along with the dinosaurs, Ilya Quimbangala. Um player who's barely featured for Manchester City since signing, I think, three years ago um, and who you know they can't seem to get rid of. And all of a sudden, he's, he's, he's turning up to play in a crucial Premier League match, um, as well as the fact, of course, that Vincent Kompany um, has also had a very bad history of being injured or indeed played uh, on international uh, games when he's not been fit for Manchester City. So there is an issue um, which is ongoing, uh, will continue, and but needs to be addressed, I think, in terms of the way that players are treated, especially um, after they've qualified already for the World Cup and that their teams uh, internationally are playing friendlies because clubs will no longer um, tolerate their best players being injured, especially when these guys are earning upwards of £200,000 a week and they're the ones paying their wages. And the compensation insurance from the national associations doesn't always equal the... Um, sometimes capped and therefore doesn't pay the full wage of the player. Uh, and, and again, in the old days, uh, like Sir Alex Ferguson would have said, uh, you're going nowhere, Giggsy, or you're going nowhere, schools, and just simply keep them back and not allow them to play in friendlies. And England particularly benefited from a kind of uh, you know, almost a, a ceasefire a cease type peace pact between the FA and clubs which allows them to turn up and then be sent back if they're not fit. And of course we had a ranch of um, withdrawals from that last England fixtures against Germany and Brazil anyway which again probably contributed, to, well most definitely contributed to Phil Jones 
taking injections and playing in the first place. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a very good point about Stones getting injured after an international break, and I'm sure it'll be something that will be in Manchester City's mind that the hamstring injury came after he'd gone into a different training regime. Um, and they, they probably don't think that's coincidental. And obviously, Vincent Company, we saw him come back in the game against Leicester at the weekend for the first time since 31st of August when he got injured on Belgium duty playing against Gibraltar in a 9-0 win, as I think we've heard Guardiola mention several times that he went away and gets gets injured in a game in which his team went 9-0. And, and the interesting thing for Manchester City is where they go from here because they now have company sort of fit, able to play 90 minutes because, well, he shouldn't have got to play 90 minutes, as we saw. He should have been sent off early, but finally able to get through 90 minutes again. And Otamendi and Mangala as their options um, for, they think, Stones will be out for six weeks. And again, notably, Pep Guardiola goes into the, the press conference after that match, is asked about his defence and says, well, I think we need to buy in January now because we are, we are left-backs injured um, out for... Uh, at least six months um, from the time he did his, his cruciate ligament. They don't have a proper backup left-back. And, and they're now down to three centre-backs with their best centre-back out for six weeks. So Guardiola is signalling very strongly that he wants the club to go and spend the money that he probably would have liked spent in the summer. In fact, you know their plan was to buy two left-backs and ideally um, also to have recruited uh, another centre-back Ironically, they wanted to sell Mangala in the in the summer window and weren't able to. If they had been able to move Mangala on, they would have brought another centre back in. And now um, Guardiola wants to do it, or is saying we need to do it in January instead, which is obviously a more difficult time to do it. It's harder to integrate the players into the team. You have fewer options; they're more expensive. But uh, for him, do it now because he doesn't want to give away this great advantage they've set up in the Premier League title race because of a lack of bodies um, at the most uh, demanding period of the season. Defenders were obviously at a premium in the in the summer transfer window, as you say, City targeted a, um, a number and United also signed a centre-back and, and appeared to be looking for a full-back as well on the left side. Are we likely to see more activity around defenders, do you think, in January with just Man City? I think we are, um, Henry. I mean, City are very interested in, in two left-backs, uh, the England left-back Ryan Bertrand and his former Chelsea teammate Patrick Van Aanholt. Um, both of whom suit Pep Guardiola's blueprint for the uh, attacking wing-back, if he's going to play three at the back or even as a back four. Um, as Duncan said, Benjamin Mendy is not expected to return um, until probably March, February if he's very lucky. Um, and even then, you know, getting a much sharp, uh, a crucial time in the season will take a bit of time. So uh, otherwise, the January window, as everyone knows, is the worst time to buy, to try and buy any player because uh, the prices are a premium. Clubs don't want to lose good players. Um, players, generally speaking, don't want to move mid-season. You've got the, uh, also got the complication of whether or not they're eligible for Champions League or Europa League, etc., uh, if they've played elsewhere. So you're not going to get the best quality player either. Um, in the cases of the Manchester clubs, uh, I think left-back still remains 
a priority uh, for United as well. And, and we've talked a lot about Danny Rose in the transfer window podcast. And I think that the Danny Rose situation is coming to a head. Uh, clearly, he, he you know, <laughs> tried to give an interview where he denied that he was angry at being dropped for the uh, North London Derby last weekend, in which he, he, he protested too much. Um, we know that Manchester are very interested. Another thing as well, with which applies to Ryan Bertrand and Danny Rose, is that English players and England international players um, are even more at a premium when, when being bought because of the squad restrictions on um, foreign signings in terms of uh, the 25 players you can register for both Premier League and Champions League as well. So they are even more valuable uh, and therefore a club, I think, especially rich clubs like United and City, will be more inclined to move and pay over the odds in January because it stops another club from coming in for that player in in the summer window in 2018 when there would make, be a more natural time to make that move. So if you pay 10, 15 million over the odds in January, not only do you get the player for the last five months of the season, but you also make sure that he's not going somewhere else come June, July 2018. So I think we will see movement um, on that front. And again, don't forget Johnny Evans uh, at West Brom. A player who very dutifully turned down, or sorry, I should say, didn't make any noise about um, the potential to join Manchester City uh, late in the in the summer window this year, uh, and who, under that, the manager <clears throat> who trusted him, made him captain, etc. Um, at West Brom, who's now been sacked, I think he's now got a reason to think to himself, well, if Man City come back for me in January, or even Manchester United. <laughs> then why shouldn't I uh, make a, a, a reason to leave this time uh, rather than simply, you know, biting my tongue and uh, and getting on my job? Yeah, I think that's a very good point, Johnny Evans. Um, he, we heard that he would get a new contract at West Brom um, as a reward for not pushing to leave when Manchester City wanted to sign him in the summer. As far as I know, that contract hasn't been offered or signed. So, as you say, Poulos is gone and Poulos was the man saying, I don't, over my dead body, do we let my best defender leave? Um, we, they don't know who their new manager will be yet. And uh, if you're Johnny Evans, um, you might take that opportunity to push for the move in January. And obviously, he was Manchester City's choice in the summer. Um, he has that added ad advantage of, of, of being, um, going on the squad list as a homegrown player. You know exactly what you get in terms of Premier League performance from him. He fits into Guardiola's um, style in that he, he can play the ball on the deck effectively. So that could well be the, the route that Manchester City pursue in, in January um, and the, the, the quickest, most obvious solution for them. What about Virgil van Dijk? Obviously, Liverpool were interested in him in the summer. Um Shipped another three goals uh, in the midweek. Are we? Do you, do you think well, that's likely to reappear? I, I think in Liverpool's dreams it would, Henry. Um, however, I, I genuinely, I don't see Southampton selling Virgil Van Dijk in the January window. <clears throat> it would be counterintuitive um, to their chances because they are effectively involved in a relegation battle. Um, um, they, they, they've been poor. Uh, I was at Anfield last Saturday and they, they were very flat uh, against Liverpool in a 3-0 defeat. They 
I wouldn't say Van Dijk himself defended badly because I think he is he's a very consistent footballer. But um, as a team, they they don't defend well, and by that I mean from front to back. Uh, and also, um, clearly under the new management, they've they've not gelled properly. Uh, and also, the reason Van Dijk was not sold is because of the takeover, which happened very late in the window, which meant that they didn't have to sell for. The money, as it were, um, which uh, was found elsewhere by the virtue of of, of selling the club uh, majority ownership. So, I think Van Dijk, uh, if he was to move to Liverpool, would only uh, and I, I do genuinely believe it would be only to Liverpool because um, that's where the player wants to go. Then it would have to mean that uh, Southampton had a at least like for like replacement for him and I think that's going to be very difficult to find in the January window so in terms of Van Dijk I would say it's unlikely for him to move in the window but going back to Evans I'd say that there's a possibility Evans could move um, to Manchester I think I think if Van Dijk defends the way he did at Anfield and on uh, at the weekend um, they might be shoving him out the door in the in the January window he was uh, very culpable for one of the, the, the Liverpool goals there a terrible bit of uh solitary movement out of the centre defence when, when the rest of the line didn't go with him, leaving a huge gap for him. I think it was Mo Salah to run into and score. Um, Van Dijk was uh, offered to every top club um, in the summer window after uh, Klopp made a mess of his approach to Van Dijk and gave Southampton the, you know, the perfect legal get-out not to sell him to Liverpool. Um, he's he and his agent are very eager to make a move. They were very eager to make a move in the summer. Um, the lack of interest from other clubs, or the lack of 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 them being prepared to go to the the kind of levels that Liverpool were going to, was quite telling in the summer, because there is a you know strong market for high quality centre backs, but it seemed that the only club that that were prepared to to pay heavily for Van Dijk or Liverpool. Um, it certainly was not the case that Van Dijk had decided, I want to go to Liverpool and that's the only club I will go to because after the Klopp situation, his agent in particular made a great effort to find him another out, which they didn't manage to find, um, which obviously would have been more acceptable to Southampton in the sense that they wouldn't have had to uh, back down after uh, seeing the player tapped up and made it make, make, making a public display of it. Um, so I think, yeah, it, probably with Van Dijk, it will come down to whether Liverpool are prepared to spend a large amount of money again and whether Southampton, with that period of time gone, are, would say, yes, um, we, we would be prepared to accept that money now. Certainly, I mean, you don't have to be a genius to see that Liverpool desperately need to improve their defence. Um, we've known that for ages. Um, Klopp, of course, tells us that he can't find five defenders uh, in the world better than the, the centre-backs he has, which um, suggests he needs a new pair of glasses. But they, they don't just need centre-back. They, they need both full-backs, particularly left-back. Um, this bizarre situation where Andy Robertson comes in in the few appearances he gets for the club, the last one I think he was man of the match, um, and then he's he's turfed out of the team for Alberto Moreno, who is in every game a defensive mistake waiting to happen. Albeit he's been better than his, his previous seasons this year, he's still no 
defender, his strength is going forward, his strength is in creating the play, but Liverpool can't afford to have fullbacks who are so biased towards attacking, creating the play, because the, the rest of their defence isn't good enough to cover for them. Just on that <clears throat> subject, Duncan, having been up at Anfield uh, last Saturday, I read somewhere that um, Moreno had uh, attributed his newfound um, improvement, let's make it, you know, as little as that, to the fact that the uh, club dietitian had cut out his portions of cake and ice cream as part of his pre-match meals. And again, if Jurgen Klopp needs a new pair of glasses to see that his defenders are not fit, I'd say that, you know, some of the dietitian, or at least Moreno himself, needs to have a look at themselves if they think that cake and ice cream is going to benefit him for his pre-match meal. Okay, we've spoken about the defensive problems at uh, Manchester City, Manchester United, and uh, also at Liverpool. But um, at Chelsea, there is an issue um, lurking in the background, which was brought to the surface this week, which is the uh, situation with their last line of defence in Thibaut Courtois, who uh, spoke about the fact that there was no progress in contract negotiations um, at Chelsea in a press conference this week. Is that... Uh, does that tell us anything about how that's going, the fact that he's speaking about it openly? Well, it tells us that it's not going well at all, and it tells us that Thibaut Courtois is quite happy to advertise to the world um, that Chelsea had not made him an offer that was acceptable to him. Um, and in, uh, well, just over six months' time, he will be into the final year of his contract. Um, and basically everything is in his favour then. If Chelsea cannot tie him down inside the next six months, I think we can expect Thibaut Courtois to leave um, either in the summer, um, if he forces Chelsea to cash in on him um, and get a transfer fee while he can, or in a year, a year's time from that, if he, the, the, the path he wants to take is to run his contract down to zero, maximise his signing on fee and maximise his wages at his new club. Um, he knows there will be no shortage of suitors for his services. He knows that um, when Real Madrid were looking to upgrade Kayla Navas, their decision was between David De Gea, who was their first choice, and Thibaut Courtois. Um, there was extensive communication between Madrid and Courtois' agent at that time. Um, Obviously, Courtois um, has a strong affinity with Spain, having um, moved to Atletico Madrid, albeit as a Chelsea player, as a teenager, um, became an integral part of a, a very strong Atletico team. Um, never actually wanted to leave Madrid and Atletico, and it was only Mourinho's um, efforts to persuade him to come, uh, Mourinho's insistence with Chelsea that he did come at that point, and Mourinho's decision to um, demote Peter Cech to backup goalkeeper that made that move happen. It, this is a it's a very important um, area for Chelsea to resolve, and it's going to be expensive for them to resolve it properly. He won't compromise on salary. He, um, I, I think even if they offer him a very big salary, they might struggle to convince him to stay. Um, and the ramifications of that are quite severe because there aren't many top-level goalkeepers available at the moment. So if you were to lose Thibaut Courtois at Chelsea, they certainly don't have a, a, a success or an heir apparent within their system as they did when they moved Cech on to bring Courtois in. 
So they would have to go out and and spend a lot of money or or do an incredible bit of scouting and find a a young goalkeeping talent that no one else has noticed yet. Uh, just, straight off just, num- number one in the Premier League. Chelsea were very shrewd in the way they recruited Courtois as a teenager and his, his career at Stamford Bridge has been, even by their standards, less than uh, straightforward. As Duncan mentioned, he spent three years on loan at Atletico Madrid during which time the club achieved incredible um, levels of success in terms of Champions League final appearances and competing for the Liga title with Barcelona and Real Madrid um, under uh, Diego Simeone. Uh, Courtois, again, as Duncan said, is correct, did not want to come back but was was persuaded by a new contract. So he's been actually a Chelsea player for six years. Three years at Atletico, three years at Chelsea. He's got two years left, well, sorry, 18 months left in that current contract. I think... um, with certain players, there's a cycle um, of uh, of affinity with any club, and I, I, I get the strong impression from people I've spoken to at Chelsea that Courtois feels like his affinity with the club has never been 100% aligned, <clears throat> and that he does feel like you know he could further his career somewhere else uh, and meet a new challenge. And I think Spain would be the most obvious uh, uh, destination for him, and Real Madrid being the most obvious. Uh, club for him to go to, given that they they constantly you know seem to be in um, a state of flux about their goalkeeper ever since Iker Casillas left the club for Porto. Um, I think Jan Oblak, Atletico's current keeper, ironically, could be the person to to fill um, Courtois' boots at, at Chelsea, but he would be expensive. And remember that Courtois, a teenager, cost Chelsea eighteen million pounds. They could probably sell him in the region of forty-five to fifty million. Um, under contract, but obviously allowing him to go for free, allowing an asset worth up to fifty million pounds to to leave the club for free would be uh, a huge, uh, you know, um, deficit in terms of the way that the, that situation could be to their advantage. And then, of course, we have had reports in the last ten days that um, the new stadium at Stamford Bridge is going to soar over the one billion pound mark. That. Roman Abramovich is considering bringing in Chinese investment or indeed investment from elsewhere in order to fund that um, project. And we know for a fact as well that Chelsea have um, been for the last five years actually quite frugal in the net transfer spend because they've sold a lot of um, of their younger players, players they've put a loan for, for two or three years uh, to cover money that they, they're spending in the market on big signings like Alvaro Morata or Timio Bakayoko, uh, in uh, Kante in the last 18 months, etc. So, I think there's an issue for Chelsea. They've got one of the best goalkeepers in the world. If they can't pursue and stay, I'd, my reading of the reason would be that they change managers so often that some players, and Courtois being one of them, get a bit fed up of that because they then have to feel like they prove themselves again and again to a new boss. Whereas Peter Cech sort of sailed through nine years of Stamford Bridge of being the un of uh, you know questionable number one goalkeeper, so in Courtois there is a problem for Chelsea as there is for any club who uh, have got players out of contract either next summer but eighteen months tends to be eighteen months tends to be the very latest trigger point in modern football to re-sign a player who is valuable to the club uh, both as you know as an ongoing asset in terms of playing and also as a potential saleable asset in the future. I was I was just going to say, is it not the case that they also, if they're looking for a new goalkeeper in the summer, will they not be up against possibly Manchester United, uh, who 
could also be looking for a new keeper if if David De Gea eventually ends up at Real Madrid. Yeah, they could be. Um, I mean, De Gea has been every summer. It's a question: Will he stay? Um, will Real Madrid um, make enough bid to to get him out of Manchester United? Can the manager of the time convince him to remain? So that that um, I don't see that going away next summer. Um, De Gea's contract is also due for renewal, um, and. Manchester United. Manchester United are kind of different from the other clubs, and they, they tend to have a policy of letting their contracts run down to the final year, and then applying. Um, they usually have a one-year option, which gives them sort of a um, kind of injury time, add extra time to to decide what they they want to do. Um, they they risk by going that way um, exponentially. Increasing the amount of money they have to pay a player, they're in that situation with Fellaini at the moment, who they triggered the one-year option last um, uh, towards the end of last season, and are now letting that run down into the final year. And Fellaini's made it clear that he he wants to stay, but he only stay if he gets a contract of a dimension he feels is is appropriate to his importance to Manchester United and also in terms of what he can get elsewhere as he moves towards the end of his his career. Um, with Chelsea, going back to Courtois, I think, I think you're right. If you leave it this late, then the players know that they're close to um, being able to go for free um, or for a, a reduced transfer fee. So they know their suitors are aware they can get them for less and they know they can get more money on their contract at the next club if they leave. And that pushes up the, the renewal price to the current club. So it's the Chelsea have probably already let it go on too long with Courtois. If Courtois is the guy they see as their long-term goalkeeper, and I don't see any indication that they do not, then really they should have got this tied down um, in the summer uh, rather than letting it drag on to the stage where, as we, we, we entered this, this segment, he goes into a UEFA press conference ahead of a Champions League match, is asked about his contract and tells the world Chelsea haven't done anything nothing's happening uh, uh, if you fancy having a go in, in, in brackets if you fancy having a go making me an offer please come and come and do that I, I can just picture Steve Atkins there head of media choking on his ginger beer at that press conference as Courtois answered those questions okay um, let's move on because I know Ian's on a parking meter um, we'll do a quick fire round and then we'll come back for one more topic I thought the quick fire round this week might be just looking at the Champions League groups, who's still in with a shout and who we think can go on and actually win it. So I'll start with you, Duncan, and then we'll go from there. Are you ready? Is this a Henry McRae quick fire round or is this a Graham Hunter quick fire round? I don't know the difference, but just make it a quick, quick fire round. Are we ready? Yes. Good. Duncan. Yeah. They can win the Champions League. Yes. Chelsea. I, I believe they can this year. In fact, they may well prioritise the Champions League if they fall further behind the Premier League, Henry. And that would be an interesting uh, proposition from uh, their point of view. Juventus. Well, Juventus have been trying to win this Champions League um, for years now, and that's been their main priority. They, they look a weaker team this year than the, in the past year. So, no, I don't think they can win it. Tottenham Hotspur. I doubt, Henry, they've got the big match experience 
to get all the way to the final and actually win a final. I think a club who have improved significantly but have not uh, yet won a major trophy uh, in recent times would struggle to win the Champions League um, in that circumstance. Seville. Well, Seville are interesting because they've, they've won Europa League um, three times in, in recent years. So they, they do have that big match experience and they do have the, the quality in, in European games. Uh, whether they're whether their actual squad is good enough to do it, I don't think they're there. I mean, they, they've, they've managed to get behind twice to Liverpool significantly and recover the games. But really, if you want to be winning the Champions League, you'd expect to be beating Liverpool, not not drawing with them in, at, the, at the tail end of a game. OK, Manchester United. They have the, the wherewithal, I think, to win the, the Champions League. They'll need some luck. Uh, they'll need everyone to be fit. They'll defend better as well. But... I've won Europe League last season. Um, haven't performed well outside of the Basel defeat this week um, in the Champions League so far. I think we will get the answer to the question, or sorry, a better answer to the question, when they come up against the likes of Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, PSG in the knockout stages. Um, and then we'll see if they've got the strength to, to go all the way. Manchester City. I think with Manchester City, it's a bit like Tottenham in that we've got to see this team actually win things. Um, they've got more experience in the ranks, they've got more winners in the ranks, but uh, it's all very well playing great at this stage of the season and having people say you're the best team in Europe. Um, it's when you get down to those big matches against very strong opponents, can you see them through? And, and can you see them through playing the, the kind of very high-risk football that they've been using very effectively so far this season, but against the best opponents, can they do that? And one other thing, Guardiola, as we saw at Bayern Munich, he struggles in the second half of the season. He tends to tire his team out and he uh, tends to have bad results towards the end of the Champions League. OK, Barcelona. From what we've seen this season so far under Valverde, I think we, we've got to believe that they have what it takes to win the Champions League. They're definitely big match experience. They've got the players and they've got the reputation, which, uh, again, frightens lesser opposition ahead of those ties, the knockout ones in, in particular. OK, Duncan, Liverpool? No, Liverpool can't win the Champions League. That was a trick question, wasn't it, Henry? Real Madrid? I don't think so. I think they were tired. I think uh, there are three or four key players in that particular team that are definitely... Uh, in the wrong end of their career, um, physically, mentally, uh, and I think that 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 will show uh, in the second half of the season. And even their remarkable history of winning this trophy will not be enough to to even get them to the final. Okay, we'll shut. We'll cut it short there. And and if any frustrated uh, Swiss people can uh, phone in and complain, if. FC Bars will go on and actually win it. Um, okay, the, uh, the we'll we'll finish with something that's a little bit uh, incestuous and uh, navel gazing, but there was a bit of a stramash, um, as we say here recently on Twitter, involving um, a certain uh, Daily Mail football writer and uh, Arsenal Football Club, um, Adam Crafton, uh, had, uh, pre prior to the. Uh, North London Derby had picked a uh, best eleven from compiled from the players of both teams and uh, failed to include a single Arsenal player. Of course, Arsenal went on and won, and uh, poked a bit of fun at Adam Crafton from the Daily Mail um, with a tweet which got quite a bit of reaction. So, Ian, 
Um, you're, you're formerly of the Daily Mail Parish and in the sports desk. Do you want to um, tell us what you think about how that played out? Well, I, to be honest, I think that um, first and foremost, Twitter uh, has many uh, great things about it and many faults. But ultimately, it's it's the all-encompassing democracy because it gives everyone a voice. So if you um, commit to being on Twitter, then you commit yourself to being exposed to the millions or billions, however many it is, people worldwide who are also on Twitter and should, have a voice equal to you. We should probably so, clarify that, you know, um, Adam Crafton got abused quite uh, heavily by, by Arsenal supporters. Yeah, um, no, and, that's true. And then, and then he... He, you know, there was a reaction was from him and from several other figures in the uh, the sporting media, you know, uh, who were a bit upset that the kind of treatment he received um, from other people on Twitter. Abuse. No, okay. Uh, Adam said that in the course of the ensuing debate on Twitter, he was subject to death threats, homophobic and anti-Semitic abuse, along with a few other things. Now, none of us condone that behaviour either in society or on Twitter. The only thing I'd say is that there is no right of any person to abuse people on the basis of their, their faith or sexuality or anything else. We all you know, agree to that. But if, if you're talking about the abuse given on the basis of football, i.e. the fact that Arsenal have a social media following of 12 million and that obviously when they tweeted directly to Adam to, to take the mickey out of him, with regards to the gift of, of Ozil drinking a cup of tea um, uh, in relation to this is how easy it is for me to get into the Tottenham team, then Adam has to stand up and be counted, quite frankly. Uh, he's on Twitter. He's a, watched for a national newspaper. He gave an opinionated piece which went out to all of his readers, both online and in the newspaper, and the, the fact that Arsenal responded to it um, on social media is, I think, fair. And I think that, you know, in my own personal experience in journalism and, and on social media, you know, I've had that kind of abuse myself. And you've, if you dish it out, you've got to be able to take it back. Simple as that. And the stupid stuff, and by that I mean the ridiculous, anti-Semitic, homophobic, etc. abuse that uh, was levelled at him, you just ignore. And you even ignore the death threats because, you know, these are just idiots and, 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 you know, imbeciles who are just venting their anger or their little bit of fury at you because they can because it is that broadline platform so you know for me I'm, you know just take it on the chin and get on with it as far as I'm concerned Duncan and, you know, Duncan you, you you rarely get any negative feedback on Twitter am I right <laughs> nothing nothing at all it's all super friendly and, and positive <laughs> no one's ever mentioned your hairstyling <laughs> yeah, that, that's quite. It's quite. Uh, that's quite amusing because it seems to be in India that the worst possible thing you can be is bald, right. and, and they think it's uh, it's hugely offensive to remind you that you're as if as if I hadn't noticed that I didn't have any hair, um, <laughs> or, or was at all bothered about it. But um, yeah, look, I, I agree with Ian. The, the, there's a lot of stuff on Twitter which um, shouldn't be there. Um, I think Twitter in, in recent years has gone. Uh, they, they, they've gone out of their way and they, they now try and close down people who are um, who make death threats or threats of violence or um, are are repeatedly harass others on the platform, which is an improvement. Um, you're never going to shut everything down, unfortunately. Um, and 
how how much should it be moderated anyway? You know, to, to what what where's the judgment and what um, what should be cut out? Um, there's certain things that definitely should be cut out, but you could probably take it too far the other way and, and try and cut too much out. I think from the perspective of a football writer, we're in a privileged position in that we have a platform um, through uh, the newspapers we write for, um, through our followers on Twitter, through podcasts like this. Um, and we are able to express our opinion um, on just a lot of people. And part of the, that privilege is you've got to um, make sure that your opinion is, is well thought out and accurate. And um, and then you uh, have to be prepared to be challenged on it. So if you say something which people perceive as being daft, they're going to query it. And and it's absolutely part of the profession to to have your opinions queried and to then defend your opinions. So from these two guys who take a hell of a lot of abuse on Twitter, um, you know, play nice folks. Uh, or keep up. Yes, keep it up. You know, get it right up them. You know, just <laughs> stick the boot in. They deserve it. That's all. It's, I'm a, it's, it's a it's a sign of a of, of a popularity. <laughs> okay, I was going to ask you to be nice to them, but no, get right stuck in. Okay, Ian's got his coat on, so he looks like he's ready to make a break for it, and that is the sign to stop things here and now. My thanks to Ian. My thanks to Duncan. We'll be back soon, and if we don't see you through the week. We'll see you through the transfer window. Boom, boom.